I know you've been waiting all afternoon for me to stand up and do this, so I'm going to share my story with you. So in a party store here in San Antonio, a customer comes up to the counter and asks, can I have a pinata shaped like baby Jesus? The person behind the counter looks at her and goes, ma'am, do you really want to hit Jesus with a stick? <laughs> she changed her mind. Aren't you glad? So that's a good thing. I need to introduce Dr. Kurt Nickham. So those of you who don't know him, I uh, can know him a little better. He is the assistant director of ACU's uh, Center for the Studies of Ancient Religious Text. What, that's a mouthful. He teaches Greek and New Testament text courses. He is also a co-director of the Textual History of the Ethiopic Old Testament Project, which has been awarded a sizable grant, uh, and they're working in studying Ethiopic Old Testament material. He is also a member of the International Greek New Testament Project Committee. He also preaches for the South 11th and Willis Church of Christ. And he's married. Can you believe this guy does all this stuff? <laughs> His wife, Deborah, is with him today. And we also, I know he has two children. So it's a, a wonderful experience to have Kurt here. Kurt, come on up here and let's pray. And then we will start. I'll turn this over to you. Father, as we come to you tonight, Lord, we thank you for your great love for us and the way you watch over us every day. Father, we thank you for the moisture, the rain today. And we pray, Father, that you will continue to bless the earth. And Lord, we pray that you will bless this church. We pray that you will bless each one of us today as we think seriously about your word, about how it came to be, how we come to understand it, and how we can apply it to our lives. Thank you for uh, Kurt coming. I pray that you will bless him, bless Deborah in their time with us this weekend. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it is great to be back with you. And uh, I know some of you have been praying for me on a daily basis uh, through my health struggles, and I am so grateful for those prayers. Uh, those prayers have seen uh, my wife and I through a lot, and uh, uh, we're just uh, super excited to be here and very grateful for all that you've done for us. Um, so uh, we're going to have four sessions, three sessions today, one tomorrow, uh, and there's a lot of info. And you know me, I'm going to try and cram it all down your throats in a very short period of time. And you're basically going to go away saying, what happened? Um, and then I leave it to uh, other people here to sort it out. Uh, um, let me see if I can get this thing to work here. There we go. Now it's working really well. So I want to preface uh, this first session on how do we get the Bible. Um, I want to preface it with some important preliminary observations, because there's a reason why we need to talk about this stuff. Um, when I was growing up in church, we really didn't need to talk about how we got the Bible. If we did, it was primarily just a historical interest type of thing. Um, but now it's actually very, very important. 
It's uh, important for a number of reasons. One of the most important reasons is this first point here, that most people today obtain their biblical information from modern books and not from the Bible. Uh, I grew up when door knocking was a thing. Right? And I could go door to door, and I could start a conversation about Jesus, and even if the person... Uh, who answered the door, didn't know much about Jesus, we could assume that they got their information about Jesus from the Bible or from people talking about the Bible. That is no longer the case. If you go door knocking and you encounter somebody who's actually willing to answer the door um, and you start a conversation about Jesus and the Bible, the starting point for them will not be the Bible or Jesus. It will be things that they've read or heard from modern bestsellers that generally are written to challenge traditional Christian beliefs about the Bible and Jesus. And the fact is that uh, scholars have found out that there's a lot of money in writing for everyday people. But the scholars who first discovered that were scholars who wanted to radically change American conservative Christianity. This started in particular back in 1985 okay, with a group called the Jesus Seminar. Uh, but it has greatly expanded, and you have people like John Dominic Crossan, Marcus Borg, Bart Ehrman, who are writing uh, books that are bestsellers. Hey, John Dominic Crossan was a professor at a state university in a religion department in the Northwest. He retired because he was getting six figures a year just from book royalties. He got to retire early because so many people were buying his books. And the end result is we have tended to think of Jesus and the Bible a certain way. And if we try to do outreach, we run into brick walls. Or, if we send our kids off to school, they run into brick walls. Right. Uh, modern authors challenging traditional Christian beliefs often know the Bible better than their Christian readers. Okay, now, they may have different conclusions, but they know the Bible better. They have studied the Bible carefully. I want to share an email that I received about 16 years ago. This is from a student who had attended a university where I was teaching, didn't do so well, and ended up transferring to a state university. And he sent me this email. Now, I'm not sure why he sent me this email, because after I had responded to him, he says, well, I didn't take any of your classes. <laughs> it seems that in all my Bible studies, I was never told about the other side of what we, the Church of Christ, hold as truth like the fact that there are over 20 or 30 Gospels, that there were 60 false Christs running around when Jesus was, thousands of first century documents, letters about Jesus and his believers. Why is over 80% of the New Testament written by one guy, with others written by the guys with Paul? There were 12 apostles. Judas dies, they vote in Matthias, then Paul comes along making it 13, then nothing but Paul mixed with Peter, John, Matthew, and Paul's own followers. Uh, by the way, if this sounds a little bit weird, again, he flunked out. 
It just seems a little biased or one-sided. Where are the other apostles? Did they write anything? You would think that they would have a lot to say with the whole upper room incident on the day of Pentecost. I read about the Q gospel, which Matthew and I think Luke used along with Mark's gospel to write their own, and the discredited gospel of Thomas. Why didn't they canonize the gospel of the Hebrews, which evidence supports early use of? Church fathers wrote a bunch, but long after Jesus and the apostles and other religions like Tertullian, who's not a religion, he's a person, late second century, commenting on the many similarities between Mithraism and Christianity. We know that the Catholic religion kept the text from the common people for centuries. That's not true. That kings have distorted it. That's not true either. Which I know that seems, uh, that seems to be fixed today, but how do we know what we know is the right way? Modern religion can't even agree. At first, I felt a little betrayed from my professors, the Bible professors. But that's long gone because I should have studied more on my own, not taking things people say on face value, which is sort of funny because... All he's doing is taking his uh, religion professor at the state university that he went to at face value. Uh, <laughs> but it has started this roller coaster of uncertainties, random facts, half truths, obscure hypotheses on Jesus the man, the Savior, God. Now, I share that with you because it's not atypical. Uh, that was the first one I ever received. It was a shocker. Uh, but. I've had a number of students who, after reading a best-selling book by one of these scholars that's challenging traditional Christian beliefs, has abandoned their faith without checking to see what might be the truth, including people who actually attended my classes, and I address most of those things in my classes. So, Okay, prop change. But not only do we have to deal with the fact that outsiders have a very different view of Jesus in the Bible than we do, but also our young people are starting to be exposed to very, very different ideas. And there's a tendency for people to like what they hear from other people because everybody loves a conspiracy theory. We should know that by now, right? Okay. If you didn't believe that before, COVID just sort of really ramped it up. Everybody loves a conspiracy theory because conspiracies make life exciting. Hey, I don't have any conspiracies in my life. and It's just boring. Right? Conspiracies sound good. So scholars, the scholarly appearances of their challenges and the conspiracies implied in their presentations seem reasonable. And people like that student who sent me an email go, my state school professor did a better job than you guys did. Um, but based on what? Uh, based on sort of the salacious content, this sort of, uh, oh, wow, the church has been trying to hide all of these things from us. Um, that sounds more plausible than the church is interested in truth. Uh, and so it creates a problem. But it's a problem that we should be concerned about. So here's one of the things that I really want you to come away with. Um, the challenges to the Bible are primarily focused on the human component of the Bible. And there is a human component of the Bible. But there's also a divine component of the Bible. 
And just because there's human involvement in the Bible, it does not negate divine involvement in the Bible. In other words, if you show me that a human has made a mistake, it doesn't by any means limit the power of God. Right? Human involvement does not negate divine involvement. And in fact, human involvement is a gift from God. It is the center of the gospel. It is Emmanuel, God with us. And you could pick a bunch of other prepositions and they don't sound very good, right? Not God against us, not God despite us, not God without us. Part of the whole centrality of the history of salvation is that God chooses to be with us, sinful people. And we should expect him to be able to work with us, sinful people. It's at the core of the very message of the gospel. And so we, let's recognize the human component and the divine component uh, and not buy into the idea that if there's a human problem somewhere, that it thereby negates everything that God is doing. Right? And we'll try and sort some of that out as we go through. Uh, another thing to remember is that everybody's working with the same data. Okay, we've got all this information. Everybody's working with the same data. And this is true for anything that you want to argue about. Okay, you can see it on the news. You can see it on, on social media. People are arguing about all sorts of things. And they're using the same facts. They're using the same data. But data are open to different interpretations. Right? You can observe certain phenomena and come up with very different explanations about how that happened. Right? Uh, Penn and Teller have a TV show where they sort of uh, uh, explain magic tricks to you. These things that from one perspective look magical, but from a different perspective uh, are clearly a trick. Okay? of the eye, of the mind, of the ear, okay? So we've got all the data, but data can be interpreted differently. So what we need to realize is not all of the explanations of the data are equally valid. Right? We could take a whole bunch of political examples of that, right? um, and, but uh, I'm afraid of where we would go with that. Um, you can have lots of explanations for the data, but some are more valid than others. Um, and what we are interested in is which explanation has the highest degree of probability. Right? We, we, it's not that every explanation is of equal value. Okay? I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been drinking some water here. But if you have not seen me drink the water, you might think that God is magically evaporating the top part of this water because I'm filled with hot air. <laughs> now, as appealing as that explanation is, the better explanation is I've been drinking water. Some people are watching online and I want to clarify because <laughs> they might not know what I'm drinking. Okay, 
So what we are concerned about is what explanation has the highest degree of probability? When scholars are presenting their material, they are offering one explanation of the data. The question is, is it the best explanation of the data? So how did we get our Bible? And most of the books of the Bible basically developed in the same way. There are going to be some variations, okay? Uh, but I want you to stop and think a bit about what is a very complicated development. The first things we have are oral traditions, stories that were told from generation to generation, right? Good portions of the Bible were shared by communities by telling stories. This is going to be true of the very, very early historical material of Genesis, for example, but it's also true of the stories of what Jesus said and did. Okay. Mark, the Gospel of Mark is the, the first of the four Gospels to be written. It's written around the year 68. Okay. Jesus dies around the year 28, so four decades before Mark's written. There may have been other things written as well, but most everything about Jesus was spoken. We sort of get that idea at the end of the Gospel of John, where John tells us that he doesn't think the books of the world could contain the whole if everything Jesus said and did were written down one by one. Now, an important aspect of that, which we may get to tonight or tomorrow, is that John's saying, I left out 99.9% .9 of everything Jesus said and did. Okay, which changes the purpose of the Gospels, right? The Gospels aren't to tell us all the details about Jesus' life. Right? John's left a bunch out. Mark's left a bunch out. Luke has left a bunch out. Matthew's left a bunch out. Why? Well, that, that's one of the questions that we want to ask. Uh, so we've got a lot of these oral traditions that are circulating in lots of languages. I put some down in your uh, workbook. Uh, Ugaritic and Akkadian would have been languages around the time of Abraham and earlier. And then you've got Hebrew and Aramaic, which is picked up in the exile, and then Greek. Um, stories about the characters that we find in the Bible and about God and his activity in the world would have circulated first in oral tradition. Then some of those oral traditions are going to get written down. Okay? could be on a cuneiform roll, okay? uh, or it could be on a scroll, a middle picture, or it could be in what we call a codex, a book, the far right picture. Okay? But even as some things are written, they might not yet fully be a book that we find in our Bible. Uh, so, for example, in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, he tells us that he has done his homework, and he's looked at lots of written sources, and he's talked to a lot of people for oral sources. And so all of those precede him writing Luke and Acts. Then you've got the copies of the written documents. Even once we get the books written down, then they're going to be copied. Uh, and they're going to be copied over a period of centuries, even millennia. And they're going to be copied by guys working primarily in the dark. They'll be in a dark room with some candles. 
You can't copy manuscripts outside because bugs like to eat the ink. All right. uh, we've got lots of uh, complaints by scribes about the bugs eating away the ink because the ink is made up of plant material. All right. And so typically, uh, you don't have tables, so they're in an awkward physical position in dark light, trying to copy from one manuscript on one knee to another manuscript on the other knee. Uh, there's room for mistakes. Then you've got translations. Okay? So these documents, like the Gospel of Luke, then get translated into other languages. Luke wrote uh, in Greek. But very early on, it starts to be translated into Latin, into Syriac, into several Egyptian languages that we call Coptic, into Ethiopic, into Gothic, into Old Church Slavonic. And, our, well, uh, and then we can talk about modern translations. Here's a list of translations in English since the year 2000. Okay. Now, yeah, that, that is a mighty list there. Now, there's a reason. We didn't have that explosive growth of translations before the year 2000. The reason the year 2000 becomes so important is that's when uh, they announced the revision of the New International Version that was going to be called the Today's New International Version. And the Today's New International Version decided to use more gender-neutral language. And there were some people who thought... The feminists have taken over the conservative Christian translation group. And people started getting upset. And it didn't help that there was some psychologist with a national radio show in Colorado who started railing against this translation, even though he doesn't know Greek. So what ends up happening is the TNIV gets put on the shelves lasts about nine months, and then gets pulled from shelves. There's such an outcry against the TNIV that the publisher just says, okay, bring them all back. But when it was announced that the TNIV was coming, people smelled blood in the water. What you have to realize is every English translation is immediately a bestseller. There's a lot of money in this. And the NIV had carved out a large part of the market. And people got greedy. And so you started getting a lot of attempts to squeeze in and get part of that market share. Right? So some of this was fueled by greed. Some of, it's, some of it's fueled by sectarianism. We need a Bible that fits our group and promotes our particular ideas. Uh, some of it was anti-feminism. Right? Uh, the ESV was uh, designed to uh, promote the eternal subjugation of women. Uh, so, in, in other words, not just keep women in their place like we have in the southern part of the United States, but that when we get to heaven, they will continue to be subjugated. Right? And so the ESV translators changed a few verses to help uh, promote a very different view of women than they thought was being promoted in the in today's New International Version.
So, um, but you see a list like this, and students see a list like this, and, and they're going, how do I know which one's the right Bible? Right. And their answer is, they're all the right Bible to some extent. And then we've got copies of translations. So the Ethiopic, that's an Ethiopic uh, copy of Paul's letters, uh, which is a translation straight from the Greek. Okay. Uh, and then you've got multiple copies of it. And then you've got translations of translations. All right. Uh, so our earliest English Bibles, like Coverdale and Tyndale to some extent, uh, were translations of the Latin the Latin Vulgate, uh, rather than the Greek. So, very long, convoluted process, and then, of course, you've got copies of translations of translations. And you're going, well, how do we know what is the Word of God if all of this stuff is going on? And that's the type of question that a lot of people want to sort of catch you on. Okay. We're all dealing with the same data. Okay? We're all dealing with all of this material. And there's, there's several different ways you can respond to it, but there are basically two that uh, we have been uh, dealing with. And one is, wow, there is a lot of room for error here. There are over 200,000 errors in New Testament manuscripts alone. So this is the Gospel of Mark that we published last year. I'm sure all of you, especially those of you in back, can read this. Okay, so what we have is one line of text, which is what we believe the original text of the New Testament is. And then we have all of the different readings in that one brief part of the verse. Now, if this is the Gospel of Mark, imagine what the size of the New Testament is going to be. I invest in some uh, forklifts for church. Now, uh, this is for scholars to use. Okay? And, by the way, all we've done is collect the data for the first thousand years of Christianity. This only goes through the 10th century. All right. So uh, there would be more if we looked at more material. And you could say, well, that's really disheartening. Right. Now, as a lesson, I have my Greek students actually copy manu manuscripts. Right. Uh, my second year Greek students are uh, copying out manuscripts of Colossians right now for... ACU is in charge of the book of Colossians, uh, and so I'm having them help us on that project. Okay. Uh, but what I want them to find out is when they start copying these manuscripts, they're going to find out that, yes, there are some errors, but nevertheless, all New Testament manuscripts agree 95% of the time. So that if we have 200,000 plus errors, those 200,000 plus errors really don't affect much of the text. And even then, if I asked all of you, would you please spell the name Adramitium? 
It occurs in Acts chapter 27, so all of you should know it. I'm imagining that we have 150 different spellings of Adramidium, right? which is about what you get in the Greek. Right? Who cares about how Adramidium is spelled? Now, if you're from Adramidium, it might be a touchy subject. Right? But a lot of those errors just deal with how do we spell these strange names? And then sometimes it has to do with being in a dark room working by candlelight and switching back and forth and back and forth. Sometimes it has to do with whether a scribe's just really invested in the job or not. We know of one scribe that's copying a copy of Luke in two columns into a new manuscript that's going to be one column wide. Well, he does a fine job until he gets to the genealogy of Jesus, and then he starts snoozing. And instead of going down one column and going down the other column, he starts going straight across the top, and it looks like Jesus is from a medieval European kingdom, or a lot of cross, it's messy. Or one of my favorites, just accidentally twisting two letters around because to store up treasure is only two letters different from breastfeeding. <laughs> and that change is a passage. <laughs> Plus, one of the things that's important about why these manuscripts agree so much with one another. Now, I, I think to some extent, God's working with the church. But we are dealing with scribes who are supposed to be scribes. They're supposed to do the work. It's the job they do. And they, they do it. Some of them are good scribes. Some of them are bad scribes. Uh, but what's really important is this is not the telephone line game. And you will get people suggesting that that's the problem. Uh, now, some of you are too young to know the telephone line game because we don't use telephone lines anymore. Hey, but we, I remember in second grade, we'd, we'd all sit down Indian style, can't do that anymore. Uh, so many things that I used to be able to do. And the teacher would whisper in the first student's ear a message, and that would be whispered in the next student's ear, next student's ear, next student's ear, next student's ear. And one of the strangest things was whatever message the teacher gave to the first student was indecipherable by the time we got to the last student. And what scholars propose is that's what's happened with our biblical text, that Whatever the original message was given in the first century, we have no earthly idea what it is because we only get the tail end of the telephone line game. Except in the first century, it's an oral culture. And in oral cultures, you tell the story to the first student, and guess what? You get the story from the last student because it's a different culture. You can't expect kids in a written culture or now in a video culture to do well with something from an oral culture. But you should expect people from an oral culture to do pretty good with oral culture stuff. 
So you, know, you will hear some of these scholars say, well, it's just like the telephone line game. No, it's not. And what gets me is they know it's not, but uh, that's, that's another uh, sore point with it. Another option of taking uh, this is not, wow, there's a lot of room for error here, but wow, there is a lot of evidence here. A lot of evidence. Uh, and, okay, what, what, which is more likely? Okay, of the different interpretations of the same data, which is more likely? That there are lots of errors suggesting that the Bible is untrustworthy or lots of evidence that proves it is trustworthy. And I can tell you, we've got lots of evidence that proves it's trustworthy. Lots of evidence. We have over 5,000 Greek New Testament manuscripts. Now, all 5,000 don't contain the entire Bible. It was very hard to put the entire Bible into one manuscript. Right? So normally the New Testament would take up four different volumes. So the, all 5,000 don't contain the entire New Testament. And I'm, I'm primarily dealing with New Testament stuff here. I can answer questions about Old Testament stuff as well. But I'm most familiar with uh, New Testament material. Uh, early translations. So if we have these Greek manuscripts and they read it, what... what what was translated into other languages and other areas around the world? Most of our early Greek manuscripts are from Egypt. So what happened in other places? Well, we've got the Bible translated into Latin in North Africa. We've got the Bible translated into Latin in Italy. We've got uh, three, uh, three major dialects of uh, Egyptian. We've got Syriac. Uh, which is uh, up by Antioch. We've got Ethiopic, which is down south at the Horn of Africa. Uh, we've got Gothic, which is uh, sort of Bulgaria. Um, and we can look at all of those different manuscripts. You know, we have a lot of Latin manuscripts, 20,000 plus Latin manuscripts. Uh, but uh, we've got lots of manuscripts, lots of early translations that help us measure what did the Bible read like, and what did the New Testament read like in all these different places? And then we've got people who wrote about the Bible, who wrote sermons, who wrote commentaries, and we can put together virtually the entire New Testament just from quotations from church writers in the first 600 years of Christianity. We have a ton of evidence. And what does that evidence suggest? The Bible, the text of the Bible, was basically static. What I mean by that is it stayed in one form and shape. We don't see a lot of variation. Oh, this is a little bit different from something like the Gospel of Thomas, which was mentioned in the email. I'm sure you remember that. Um, Gospel of Thomas is... Uh, a Gnostic gospel. It uh, was written in the second century. Um, but we have fragments of the Gospel of Thomas. And it's clear that its text was changed radically. But all the fragments we have of the canonical gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, from the same time period, represent the same text. That people are making a, a distinction between the four Gospels and that particular Gospel. Right. 
So, yes, there's lots of room for error. But what's amazing is there's very little error. But that's not what the people who are challenging the authority of the Bible want you to know. That's not what they're going to highlight. Uh, and a lot of what happens is either in these books or in uh, television interviews where you've got five minutes to make a difference. And what you do is you throw out the stuff that you think is going to grab the attention of somebody who is a conservative Christian and, and plant that seed of doubt and get them to buy your book so you can convince them that uh, things look otherwise. It's been very successful. And uh, don't have time to go into all of it, but it has been uh, successful. So, what is error? Well, first off, let me remind you, human involvement does not negate divine involvement. And also, I think this is important, we cannot place modern expectations on an ancient text. Okay. There is a tendency for us to assume this is what God would have done. Now, here's, here's the rest of that that we never say out loud. If I were God. Right? I wouldn't have allowed a single mistake in the Bible if I were God. But God did. So, how, how do we deal with this? Do we deal with the stuff that God gave us, or do we pretend that God is different? And if we pretend God is different, the traditional view of that is idolatry. So either we need to go with what God gave us, or we, in, we create a new God. I go with what did God give us? What did God give us? Now, what gets called error is not always error. Or if it is an error, it's not a big error. If I misspell the word the, which the guy who wrote the email did, uh, if, I, if I misspell the, does that destroy the message? It doesn't, right? We're all smart enough to figure out, oh, the person meant to write the. Right? And we don't stop, and well, I do. I have to mark it in red. Uh, but but I, I'm paid to do that. Uh, but generally, we just skip through that, right? If you're on social media, Facebook, things like that, sometimes you get these memes where somebody has spelled out something and all you get is consonants. And you, you can read it. It's not hard at all. So a lot of the things that, we, that get called errors, really not errors. And then sometimes we get convinced that there's an error when there isn't an error. Okay? A lot of the errors are on our part, not on the Bible's part. Okay. For example, I'm going to give you two examples, uh, both of which have been used recently uh, to suggest that we cannot trust our Bibles. Luke 18.25, talking about uh, putting a camel through the eye of a needle. It's the text you're most familiar with. I had a student point out this passage to me, referring to some scholarly study. Uh, 
at least from the student's perspective, it was a scholarly study. And the, the conclusion that the student had made is we cannot trust our Bibles because Jesus said rope and not camel. Now, here's the information. The Aramaic word for rope and the Aramaic word for camel sound alike, which is absolutely true. They do. They're, they're even spelled the same. So how do you know the difference when somebody's talking about, when do you know he's talking about a rope and when he's talking about a camel? Context. Context. Oh, you know this stuff. Why am I teaching you? The next point is Jesus spoke Aramaic. Ooh. Yeah, okay. Yeah, he spoke Aramaic. And here's the kicker. Based on one and two, then three, it makes more sense for someone to push a rope through the eye of a needle than a camel. Now, that's, a, that's, argument. <laughs> that's arguable. Is it easier? Uh, therefore, this is proof that the saying was translated incorrectly. Now, if all you get is those points, and, and by the way, what people are doing is the same thing that lawyers do. Right? And this is not to say anything bad about lawyers. So if you're a lawyer, don't sue me. <laughs> It is the lawyer's job to convince a jury that their position is right. So guess what they're going to do? They are going to go and present all of the evidence that makes their position look right. They're not going to say, and oh, by the way, the other lawyer is going to point out this error and this error and this weakness and this weakness. They're not going to present anything of the other side. Right? They just want to present what's going to work to convince the jury, and you're the jury. Right? And you get those propositions, and the conclusion seems reasonable. But, although the words for rope and camel sound alike in Aramaic, you've already told me this, so don't go back on me now. Context determines meaning. It's always context. Context, context, context determines meaning. Here's another thing. Jesus also spoke Greek, and probably a lot more Greek than we give him credit for. But Jesus also spoke Greek, and there's no indication as to whether he was speaking Aramaic or Greek at this particular moment. Now, granted, I think Aramaic is the most likely, but we don't have a guarantee. And Greek, the words for camel and rope sound very different. But here's the kicker. Jesus is not trying to make more sense. He's trying to hammer home a point that his disciples are not willing to make. Because a guy has just shown up. He's got power. He's rich. He's healthy. And he's kept the Ten Commandments. And the disciples are going, we're not worthy. We're not worthy. And so Jesus gets in a conversation with this guy. And Jesus starts talking about the Ten Commandments and says, you know, have you kept them? You know, why are you asking me what to do? You've got the Ten Commandments. And he says, I've done them since my youth. And Jesus says, great. That's fantastic. Now, would you show me 
that you keep the Ten Commandments. Go sell all your possessions, give the money to the poor, and come follow me. Jesus is challenging him to love his neighbor, uh, which is what the second half of the Ten Commandments is all about. And if you notice, the discussion about the Ten Commandments only focuses on the second half because it's all about love your neighbor. We're not doubting that to some extent he loves God. What Jesus is doubting is the extent to which he loves his neighbor. And the disciples are still looking at this guy going, oh, he's so good. Right, because they're measuring spirituality based on wealth and health and keeping God's word. And Jesus is going, no, what we really need to look for is the heart. Is the, the health and wealth and keeping the laws, that's really, really nice. But where's the heart in all this? Can he do this? And the guy goes away sad because he's unwilling to do it. And then Jesus tells his disciples, it is easier for a rich man well, yeah, it's easier to put a camel or rope through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples respond appropriately. That's impossible. That's impossible. What's Jesus' response? Some of you will know. Yeah, with God, all things are possible. Now, what's going to go on in... Uh, Luke 18 and 19 is we have a number of stories that are paralleled in Luke 18 and 19. And we've got this anonymous rich guy coming to Jesus who's followed the laws and he goes away dejected. And then we've got this little scrawny, by the way, he's not healthy because he's scrawny. He's a tax collector, so he's not healthy because he's sinful. To be a tax collector, you have to steal. But he's got a name. And having a name in the ancient world means everything. We've got the rich young ruler walking away anonymous. But we've got Zacchaeus. And today, salvation has come to your house. We get an example of God bringing a rich man into the kingdom of heaven. Putting those stories together. But Jesus was not trying to make more sense. He was trying to express, here is something that is impossible apart from God. Not here is something that's difficult, just merely difficult. Hey, what's really going on here is modern Christians don't want to hear Jesus' message to the rich young ruler. Now, it's not just modern Christians. You may have heard that the eye of the needle is actually a small gate in the wall of Jerusalem? That's not true. That was made up in 1848 by a Syrian Orthodox priest. Right? Who was going the same direction? I don't want Jesus to be saying something like that. You know, the rich people don't want to hear it. Uh, and so how can we change the message so we feel a little bit better about not helping our neighbor? Which scenario better expresses the power of God? Pushing a rope through the eye of the needle or pushing a camel? Yeah, well, I agree. Either one's impossible, but one's more impossible than another. Okay? I, I could try and fray the rope and find different ways. I, I, would, I would work at that. Camel, I can give it up right away. Plus, which scenario is more likely? Everybody 
heard Jesus and understood his verbal and nonverbal cues. Uh, wait, let me go. I somehow skipped one. Okay, so which one is more likely? Okay, people listening to Jesus heard rope, and then someone accidentally or intentionally changed it to camel. And none of the other disciples who heard Jesus' original wording objected to the change. You think somebody would have said, wait one second, that's not what Jesus meant. He didn't mean camel, he meant rope. Or all who heard Jesus understood his verbal and nonverbal cues, which made camel the only possible meaning of the word in that context. The second one is obviously much more likely. And again, if you can read the text in English, you can figure out that the most likely context is he's talking about a really big, ugly, spitting animal. Luke 14, verses 26 and 27. Is this an example of error in the early church? Okay, here's the premise. Okay, uh, what's going on? Well, let me... Uh... Oh, I'm running out of time. But this is one of the places where he tells the crowd to take up their cross and follow me, right? So... If anyone hates, if anyone wishes to come to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and even his own life is not able to be my disciple, who does not, the one who does not carry his own cross and come after me is not uh, able to be my disciple. And the argument is Jesus is referring to crucifixion, but he hasn't been crucified yet. Therefore, this could not have been said by Jesus. All right? Someone fabricated these words. And if someone fabricated these words, they could have fabricated all the words. Now, that's a huge leap in logic. All right? Somebody could have fabricated that particular saying, and, but the rest of it's just fine. But granted, if we give them the, the, the huge leap in logic, uh, but context is crucial. Jesus' crucifixion was not the only meaningful death on a cross for Jewish Christians in the first century. Although Jesus' statement will gain greater meaning when Jesus dies himself on a cross, this language about unless he hates his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and even his own life refers to something that happened virtually a hundred years earlier. When Alexander Janaeus was king over Israel, he was also high priest, and he caused a lot of problems. He, he liked being a Greek king and hated being a Jewish high priest and did all sorts of things. There's lots of really funny stories to tell about him. But conservative Jews decided that they needed to change the government. They needed to remove Alexander Janaeus. So they went to Damascus. Syria owned Israel at the time. They got with the king and they started a rebellion. The Syrians, who are Gentiles, and the conservative Jewish people started an uprising against Alexander Janaeus and his armies. And Alexander Janaeus and his armies were losing. 
So they finally sort of hole up in Jerusalem that has a good two years food supply and fresh water supply. So it's going to take a long time to get the Jew, the king and his army out of Jerusalem. Well, the king of Syria could care less about Jewish views of the temple. He wants to attack the temple. But the conservative Jews who have started this rebellion with him don't want Gentiles in their temple. So when it becomes clear that Alexander, not Alexander Janus, but that the Syrian king is going to move his troops to attack the temple, the conservative Jews attack the Syrians. And then Alexander Janus and his armies came out and helped, and then the Jews kicked the Syrians back into Syria, to Damascus. This left Alexander Janus in control. And so he was going to make an example of the rebels. And so while he and his concubines were holding this big feast on the walls of Jerusalem, he had 700 Pharisees crucified. And while they were dying slow, painful deaths on crosses, he marched their wives and children out and had them killed by the sword. Jesus is saying, you guys know the cost of investing in God's truth. You guys know the cost. Now, when Jesus dies on the cross, they're going to have a better idea of the personal cost of following God's truth and doing this. But there is nothing here that Jesus himself could not have said in the first century. But people aren't going to tell you the Alexander Janaeus story when they bring this up. They're just going to throw us out there. Oh, Jesus couldn't have said this. He hasn't been crucified yet. Well, there were 700 Pharisees. So, um, to wrap it up, there, there are some other things that we could cover, and maybe in, in questions and things we can do that. But I just want you to know, current challenges to the authority of the Bible are always focusing on the human component. Okay? What is the human product? And when they do so, they are either ignoring or rejecting divine power. Even if there are human errors in the text of the Bible, God works with human error. He has since creation. That's our God. He works with human error to save humans. There is such a thing called grace. There is such a thing called forgiveness. We have a very long history of a God who is working to fix us. And so let's remember, human involvement does not negate divine involvement. And God fixes human error. God can even work through human error. God can work through human error to save people. My Wednesday night Bible class is going through the Exodus story. Talking about human error, Pharaoh. Okay? But God not only saves Israelites through Pharaoh's errors, he saves Egyptians as well. So, just something to keep in mind. We'll uh, see what types of questions have, have, have come up. Why don't we give him a hand? That's an excellent talk. I hope you have learned a, a little bit. We've got a little ways to go. Um, all right.
You've been making me worried all night with this thing. <laughs> me too. <laughs> okay. So um, I had one person, but I think you might have answered this question, ask just a clarifying question on what you meant by error, grammatical or translation or syntactical or whatever. And um, I didn't know if you wanted to qualify that anymore. Uh, we, we probably should because, um, you know, all of the above... Uh, but then we might think of, how, how does God work, right? One of the great things about God is He works with us at our level. And we have to remember, He's, he's working with people in the first century for the New Testament, earlier centuries for the Old Testament. And one of the things we see in Scripture is God sort of granting where they are at, even if it's technically wrong. I'll give you an example. Jews believed, don't, not all, there are lots of different Jewish groups in the first century, but a number of Jewish groups believed that there was a rock that followed the Israelites through the wilderness. Okay. And that's where Moses got tap water. An actual rock. Yes, they didn't get the tap water. That's one of the best Jewish dad jokes I know. <laughs> right? Moses taps on the rock, water comes up, tap water! <laughs> Uh, I want y'all to appreciate I don't tell jokes like that. <laughs> oh, I shouldn't have to explain these things. I'm explaining them to my students all the time. But, uh, I wonder why. <laughs> so what we have is Moses striking a rock early in the wilderness story and getting water, and Moses striking rock later in the wilderness story and getting water, and some Jews thought that, well, that must have meant that there was one rock following the Israelites. So you've got the column of fire and smoke at the front, and you've got this big old rock filled with water in the back. Now, Paul believes that's true. He refers to it in 1 Corinthians 10. Now, technically, that is a historical error. But it's not a big deal. Now, it, it might be to some of you, but uh, um, I, I don't see that as a big deal. God's working with people where they were at. And if that's how they understood the event, God says, I've got bigger things to deal with, right? We've got the Corinthians who are messing with the Lord's Supper. And what he wants Paul to do is help the Corinthians see that just because you get baptized and you do the Lord's Supper every week doesn't mean your body's not going to be dead in the wilderness, Right? That you can't view baptism and Lord's Supper as magical things that somehow are get out of jail free cards. Right? And so he works with Paul and where Paul is at and where Paul's community is at and says, it's not worth the effort for me to sort that one out. Here, let me make a really important point from that. I don't view that as error. Okay? Um, but technically, it could be viewed as an error. Okay, excellent. Well, um, another question that I came up with after looking at, I mean, for you guys who know, I, I got to see all the slides before he put them up there. That one slide with all the Bible translations. Is that not amazing? That's amazing since the year 2000. Yeah. Um, so... 
The question is, with that many, how do you know which ones are worthy to pay attention to? Okay, well, that, that's, that's a great question. Um, you want to try and avoid anything that has an overt agenda uh, or is very narrowly focused. So one of the Bible translations up there was done by uh, a bunch of Lutheran pastors uh, who said, you know, we, we need a more Lutheran Bible, and, and now's the time to do it. And uh, they really weren't trained in translation or anything, just some, some Lutheran pastors who wanted to have what for them was a more appropriate translation. I would, I would shy away from anything that's leaning towards a, a particular uh, perspective, sectarian perspective. Um, anything with a, a particular agenda. I didn't put any novelty Bibles up there, and there are a lot of novelty Bibles that uh, you can get. I would stay away from novelty Bibles. Best thing to look for is, is it done by a committee of well-trained scholars? Don't go for something that was trans translated by one person. One person can't do it. Uh, plus, you need the checks and balances. Okay. You look for a committee of well-trained people. And then look and see what type of text they're trying to translate. Is it a, a, a good, up-to-date, scholarly text? So uh, the, what's abbreviated BHS for the Old Testament, and then uh, NA or UBS, Nestle Aland, for the New Testament. Um, and they'll usually have BHS or NA uh, as abbreviations in the intro. You can read the intro and find out a lot about what uh, a group is trying to do. Um, That's true. And a diverse group of translators. Okay? Um, again, sort of trying to lean away from sort of sectarian interests. Uh, but the latest New International Version, the New Revised Standard Version, are both um, really sort of good central translations uh, that are worth pursuing. But uh, committee and good original texts are 